Our final speaker is Upuli Divasekara. Upuli is a molecular biologist with wide-ranging experience in many fields of research, from parasites to cancer, and now nanotechnology. She recently discovered that science communication can be enormous fun and helped curate the Real Scientist Rotation account on Twitter, writes the occasional article, and talks about science to anyone who will listen. Ladies and gentlemen, Upuli. Hi, everyone. Um, so, as Natalie pointed out, uh, I'm a molecular biologist, but what I also am is, in fact, a bit of a physics fangirl. I'm a biologist because I can't maths, <laughs> which is a bit of a problem. So, I expect that all the physicists in the audience will peer review me as I speak. So, what did I want to do? The person I wanted to talk to you about this evening was um, a very famous physicist, probably one of the best-known physicists next to Einstein, Erwin Schrödinger. And Schrödinger belonged to that elite class of these incredible physicists um, who were part of the, this huge wave of, of new physics that was part of the uh, early part of the last century. And if Niels Bohr was their pope as the person who came up with the Copenhagen, Copenhagen interpretation, which is that uh, at the atomic level... Um, all kinds of different states of matter, or rather, well, quantum states, something, uh, can exist at once, um, then Einstein was the Pope. So what does that make Schrodinger? Well, he's kind of, well, he's Rasputin, I guess. Sadly, um, well, not sadly, probably not for him. Uh, Schrodinger was a bit of a ladies' man. Um, he, you can think of him as sort of like Egon Spengler from Ghostbusters. Uh, he looks like him, he has his brains, but he kind of has like the, an eye for the ladies, like Venkman. Anyway, Schrodinger was born in uh, Vienna in Austria in 1887 in August. So we just missed his birthday. Um, and he was born to a very wealthy family, a Protestant family. And um, he was, as you, as you would expect, he excelled at school. He was brilliant at mathematics and physics. But he was also brilliant at poetry and at languages. So he was a bit of a polymath from early days on. He ended up going to university, uh, graduating with the highest honours and taking up positions in German universities. And around this time, which is the 1930s, he, of course, encountered Nazism. Now, he was an opponent of Nazism um, and he stated this very vociferously, so he had to leave Germany. So he ended up leaving Germany to go to Oxford and spending time in Oxford, but he was sort of kicked out of Oxford because of his unusual living arrangements. He lived with two women at once and his cat. So whoever's told you that Schrodinger didn't like cats is a liar. <laughs> he then was offered a place at Princeton, but he couldn't go to Princeton either because the British Americans didn't want him to turn up with two women and a cat either. So he actually went back to Austria, and this is kind of where his character slipped a bit. He was opposed to Nazism, but he desperately, desperately wanted to continue as a physicist in university. So what he did was he partially recanted his opposition to Nazism. Um, so for a short while he was employed by the University of Graz. Uh, and eventually they just decided that he was just, you know, not politically reliable and they kicked him out. So he wandered around a bit and ended up in Ireland. Now prior to this was uh, that he had roundly and soundly criticised the Copenhagen interpretation, that is, that all kinds of states can exist at once with his famous cat experiment. So, you know, 
uh, thought experience. So, you know, if Einstein wants to describe relativity, what does he do? He says, if you sit with a pretty girl for an hour, it feels like a minute. Sit on a hot stove for a minute, it feels like an hour. That's relativity. How does Schrodinger describe the Copenhagen interpretation? Take a steel box, put a cat in the steel box, put radioactivity in the box and a Geiger counter and a toxin. Then seal the box. Then wait for the wave functions to collapse inside the box and then find out if the cat is alive or dead. But in that state, while you're waiting for that function to collapse, the cat may be alive or dead. I'm hoping that's correct because I get my science and my physics from popular science books. <laughs> anyway, this was his interpretation. He wasn't happy with the Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen interpretation. And he's best known for his work, which is the Schrodinger equation. And this is the equation for which he won the Nobel Prize. It's this work where he decided to look at quantum physics in a different way. And he managed to, through this equation, describe all of the kinds of quantum states that can occur in a particle or in a molecule over the course of time. It was an amazing original piece of work. As I said, he won the Nobel Prize. It's also rumoured that he came up with it while stuck in a sanatorium in the Swiss Alps in a nice chalet after a very, very nice weekend with a young lady. <laughs> That's right. His milkshake brings all the girls to the yard. Damn right, it's better than yours. He could teach you, but you'd have to know maths. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anyway, so he, invented, he eventually ended up in Ireland uh, and became an Irish citizen. But one of the other things that really fascinates me about him was that he was actually really interested in Hinduism and Eastern philosophies. And he tried really, really hard to come up with a kind of unified field theory, a theory of everything. He just wanted to basically come from one thing and describe everything in the universe. And even though he came up with this really unsuccessful sort of unified field theory, it was this equation, the Schrodinger equation, that actually explains many things in the universe and it said that it can potentially describe everything that happens in the universe. He went on to, do, to continue as a successful physicist and most importantly for me as a molecular biologist, um, he wrote this wonderful book called What is Life? And in it he tries to predict how life might come about um, from first principles, from the first principles of having a Big Bang and then having atoms created and molecules created. And it was really amazing stuff. And he predicted that genetic information, the information that codes for a living organism, could spontaneously, well, you know, after various reactions, could actually come about through first principles. And he called, um, I think he called it a crystal theory. But this work actually inspired many, many scientists, including Linus Pauling, Francis Crick, and James Watson. And these three are the ones we know best of all for competing to find the structure of DNA. And once the structure of DNA was discovered, we understood how the information to create a living organism was generated and stored. And it basically unleashed the entire molecular biology revolution that we see today that has led to the Human Genome Project, um, that has led to the creation of synthetic organisms, uh, of new drugs and so on. And it's also contributed in a distant way to nanotechnology, which is a crossover between physics and biology.
So just to, to close, what I really like about Schrodinger is that he really wanted to, he wanted to know everything and he tried to find out everything and he tried to do it in as elegant a way, which is mathematics, as possible. And I just want to paraphrase Hilary Mantle here. Um, she says, it seems characteristic of Schrodinger's generation of scientists that they were not afraid to admit that an aesthetic impulse moved them, that they were chasing a glimpse, however fleeting, of some confirming, self-ratifying idea of beauty, an equation to transcend all equations, some sense of a perfect rightness, a feeling of the universe clicking into place. Because science is ultimately an aesthetic pursuit and it's why we do it. Thank you. <laughs>